Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, and let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that you be with me and with everyone here just now. May we hear your voice, and may we receive your great love. Amen. I'd like to begin by telling you the true story of a patient that I saw in my neurology clinic several years ago, and I'd like for you to make the diagnosis in this case. I'll call him Mr. Jones. And Mr. Jones at the time was a 52-year-old man who was referred to me for an episode where the entire left side of his body became paralyzed for about five minutes. And then suddenly, everything returned to normal. So I saw him and performed a number of tests to try to decide what was going on. And eventually came to the conclusion that he had a cardiac arrhythmia, and specifically this is called atrial fibrillation. And what happens here is that one wall of the heart, instead of beating and contracting normally, it quivers. And so what happens is blood clots can then form on the wall of the heart, and then on occasion those clots can break off and go up to the brain and can cause strokes. Well, he was lucky in this case because that clot went up to the brain and it dissolved, and that's why his weakness uh, returned back to normal. So I immediately saw him back and informed him of my diagnosis and of the great importance that he begin on some blood thinners to prevent these clots from forming. And I remember we had a discussion about this, and he smiled and nodded, and I gave him a prescription for a blood thinner and referred him to a cardiologist. I told him, you'll need to come back frequently, in fact, in just a few days, for some blood tests. Well, he didn't come back for those blood tests. And uh, my nurse called to find out what was going on. And uh, I think you would think that someone who'd had such a brush with a devastating stroke would be very compliant. But he informed my nurse that actually he had decided not to take the medication, and he'd decided not to see the cardiologist. So I called him to try to find out what's going on here, and he told me he'd been doing some reading on the internet, which can be a dangerous thing, and uh, that he'd found someone in the area who was doing something with uh, some sort of electrical stimulation therapy as a means of thinning the blood. Well, I knew that this wouldn't be adequate, and I explained to him in detail that if he pursued along this line of treatment, that he would almost certainly have a stroke. Well, we had some discussion, but that was the end of the conversation. And he replied, well, Dr. Cole, I just I read where this would do the job and that it was safer, and the doctor that I saw told me that it would be strong enough. Well, will you at least see the cardiologist? Let's get another opinion. Maybe he can persuade you. And uh, he was unmoved. Dr. Cole, I'm going to try this, and I'll just see what happens. Well, two months later, a call from the emergency room. And the doctor said, Mr. Jones is in the emergency room. He's had an episode this time where the right side of his body was paralyzed. And he can't talk. But it lasted for about three minutes, and now he's back to normal again. So I came in. We discussed this at length. Mr. Jones, you're extremely lucky once again. But now we simply must start you on this medication. And he replied, okay, 
Let me just first talk with this other doctor. All right, I'll think about it, but I'd like to just get another opinion first. And uh, I just, as much as I could, pleaded, Mr. Jones, I am convinced, based on much evidence, that this is the effective treatment to prevent these strokes. Give me just a few days to think about it, Dr. Cole. And he left the emergency room. Well, as it turns out, Mr. Jones went back to the unlicensed doctor who was giving him this electrical stimulation therapy. I never found out exactly what it was, but um, anyway, this doctor recommended that perhaps he should add some herbs to this treatment as a way of thinning the blood. And uh, his wife told me later that uh, this individual who was not actually a doctor, but that he had told him this is a dangerous medication that the doctor is trying to give you. And they're just trying to make money anyway. And so I, let's go this other direction. Well, I didn't hear back from Mr. Jones until another two months passed when the same emergency room doctor called. Mr. Jones has had a large stroke. And unfortunately, this stroke was exactly in the area of the brain where we understand language. And so when I saw Mr. Jones, he didn't recognize me and really didn't understand anything that was being said. Very sad case. That the medical diagnosis, of course, in this uh, case is a stroke that came from the heart. But there's something else that underlies this diagnosis. And as a diagnosis number two, this story illustrates a breakdown of what? Trust, yes. Now, did he have trust? Well, actually, he did. But he put his trust in someone who was untrustworthy. And, of course, this led to a devastating consequence. Now, I'd like to have you turn your Bibles to Genesis 3, a story which gives another powerful illustration of trust or trust gone wrong. Now, unlike the man in this story, Adam and Eve, of course, in this setting are in perfect health mentally, physically, and they had heard God's strong warning which if I could very loosely paraphrase was, don't go to that tree. Don't trust the person at that tree. He's a liar. And if you believe the lies told about me, it will lead to devastating, even deadly consequences. So let's listen very carefully. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the snake was the most cunning animal that the Lord God had made. And as we read on, listen very carefully to the very subtle and well-crafted three-pronged lie that Satan presented to Eve. The snake asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, had God said that? What did God say? You can eat the fruit from every tree in the garden, except this one. What's the implication here? Eve. God is restrictive, isn't it? I can't believe you can't eat any fruit in this garden. What's the deal? All right, well, Eve defends God, but yet I think she's on dangerous ground here. Listen to her reply. We may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, the woman answered, except the tree in the middle of it. God told us not to eat the fruit of that tree or even touch it. If we do, we will die. Now, of course, we don't have God on record saying, if you touch the fruit, you'll die. But the snake replied, 
That's not true. You will not die. Now, here is the dagger. Eve, God is a liar. God is untrustworthy. And as the story goes on and we watch as Eve eats the fruit, what she really ate was the lie that God himself is an untrustworthy liar. Well, I think Satan here senses his opportunity. And so he goes on to slip in yet a third deadly lie, but at the same time, in such a crafty way, stimulates selfish ambition in Eve. God said that because he knows when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. Very crafty indeed. First, Eve. God doesn't let you eat any fruit in this garden, does he? Hmm, is God restrictive? Second, Eve, God has lied to you. You won't die. And Eve must have thought, is God really an untrustworthy liar? And then finally, third, Eve, if you eat the fruit, you will be so much more elevated. Look at me eat the fruit. Eve, have you ever seen a talking snake before? And Eve must have thought, you mean God is the kind of person who would threaten me with death merely so that I would not reach this more elevated state? What kind of a God is that? And so Eve bought the lie about God. And in her eating of the fruit, this action symbolized her complete breakdown of trust with God and in her belief in the words of Satan. God's trustworthiness. This is always where Satan attacks first. We don't have many stories of Satan directly encountering individuals, but if we skip all the way forward to Jesus, the baptism, and we hear the beautiful words of the Father, you are my own dear son with whom I am pleased. Jesus immediately goes out to the wilderness of temptation. What are the words of Satan? If you are God's son, turn this stone to bread. You see, the words there were designed to create distrust even between father and son. I believe that the central issue for each one of us here is an issue of trust. Who do we trust? But I think some of us might be thinking, is this really an issue for us? I mean, after all, we're not capable of trusting Satan's lies about God, are we? Well, let's very humbly remember the people that Jesus came to 2,000 years ago. Did these people call God by the right name? Yes. Our father is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it turns out that God was none other than Jesus. But yet, the real God showed up. The one they were reading about all the time in the Bible. But yet, when he showed up, they said he had a demon. And Jesus said to them, you are of your father, the devil, though you may call God by the right name. Did they read their Bibles? Yes, so many of these things Jesus commented on. He said, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But yet they read their Bibles in the wrong way and they came to a satanic picture of God. Were they faithful in their church attendance? Of course, how many times do we read Jesus meeting with the people in the synagogue? And you'll remember the one occasion where they were so offended by his message, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Did they pay their tithes and offerings? Again, these are all positive things. But Jesus commented, 
how they were so faithful they would even tithe the little herbs like the mint and dill. Were they involved in mission and outreach? Another, so many good things. Remember Jesus saying, you send missionaries to sail the seas, cross whole countries to win one convert. And when you succeed, you make him twice as deserving of going to hell as you yourselves are. And finally, did they even keep the right day of worship? Why did the Pharisees petition Pilate to break legs? It was so that they could make it home to keep the Sabbath. This should be shocking to us to witness these people calling God by the right name, externally doing so many things that we ourselves would say, yes, those are good things, those are good things. But yet, God shows up and they hated him. We could make an extensive list, a similar list, of many people throughout history, such as those during the Dark Ages, who burned the martyrs at the stake, but yet they would say with words, we trust Jesus, but yet they were living in harmony with Satan's kingdom. So here is the central message that I am trying to give today. It is this, our trust in God must be based on a true knowledge of his character. The Pharisees, coming back to them, once again, they trusted in God by the right name, but yet their beliefs about God's character were completely false. Listen to the words of Ellen White about the people in Jesus' day. Through the accumulated misrepresentation of the enemy, Satan, many were so deceived that they worshipped a false god clothed with the attributes of the satanic character. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The Creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the Prince of Evil himself. Now, listen very carefully. What are the attributes Satan tries to portray God as? He tries to portray God as arbitrary, severe, unforgiving, that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. For when we believe God to be arbitrary, severe, punishing, unforgiving, are we capable of appreciating a God who in reality is humble, kind, and supremely forgiving? We come back to those people who burned the martyrs at the stake in the name of Jesus. We trust Jesus. They could do the terrible things they did because in their hearts, in their minds, they believed God to be a vengeful monster. So as painful as it may seem, we are actually capable of, with our words, talking to Jesus. But if in our minds we believe God himself to be a vengeful monster, our trust does us no good. So the central issue then in our trusting relationship with God is what we believe him to be like in character. And this is why I find it so significant that it is a person by the name of Michael who is in contact, in conflict with Satan time and time again throughout Scripture. You're all familiar with Revelation 12, which describes this great controversy which began in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels. Now, why does Jesus choose the name Michael in his conflict with Satan? 
And it's interesting that the name Michael is really a question. And the question is, who is like God? What is God like? This is why Satan, this is why Jesus came in his battle with Satan over the hearts and minds of each and every one of us here. God himself came in human form to once and for all answer the question, who is like God? One third of the angels bought the lie. Eve bought the lie. God came, as it says in John 1, to his own people, his own people who are reading about him all the time in the Bible, but his own people had bought the lie about God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was with God and the word was God. God himself came for only God could answer the question, who is like God? What is God like? Now I'd like to just consider for a few moments, if Jesus, if we accept that Jesus is none other than God in human form, then what is God really like? What does it say about God that he would enter this world not as a mighty prince, but that he would enter this world as a single cell inside the womb of a teenage virgin? Does an arbitrary, vengeful tyrant enter the womb of one of his creatures? What does it say about God that he would spend his first night in a manger? My Bible has a footnote by the word manger, which clarifies that a manger is a feeding trough. What does it say about God that he would spend his first night on earth in a feeding trough? What does it say about God that he would grow up in Nazareth, a place from which it was said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Would a fearsome deity condescend like this? What does it say about God that in his first major sermon, the sermon where he would announce his platform and describe his kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, that what he would begin this sermon by saying, blessed are those who know they are spiritually poor, blessed are the meek and humble, and that he would not only state that this is his desire for you and I, that we be meek and humble, but that later he would even say about himself, take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit. Who is gentle and humble? Is Jesus God? If Jesus is God, if Jesus is a perfect reflection of the character of God, then God himself is gentle and humble in spirit. And can you put your trust in a God who is gentle and humble in spirit? And in story after story, in the life of Jesus, we are continually reminded God is like that. God is like that. Fast forward now to the end of Jesus' life and imagine yourself in the upper room. And the context for this upper room experience is that the disciples, as they always were, were striving to be first. Can I sit at your right hand when you enter into your kingdom? Can I be first? Can I be first? And Judas, of course, had already betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees. Jesus, of course, is completely aware of everything that's going on. What should he do in this setting of chaos? What would you and I do? 
Maybe flex some muscles, give a scolding to the disciples, eliminate Judas on the spot. Well, we read the story in John chapter 13 of what the creator of the universe did the night before he died in the setting of rebellion, even among his disciples. And we read that he humbly took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist, knelt down, and washed the feet of his disciples. And most remarkably, he washed the feet of his betrayer. But let me just pick up another detail here. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to John 13. This is the chapter that describes Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. But skip to the end, after he washes their feet. And this is in John 13, verse 27. And we read, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Judas does not appreciate a God who washes dirty feet. And Jesus said to him, Hurry and do what you must. None of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money bag, some of the disciples thought that Jesus told him to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Now, think of the implications here. Jesus, we know, is aware of all of this. He knows that Judas is in charge of the money bag, but yet he's helping himself all the time to the money in there. But can you put your trust in a God who would not only wash the feet of his betrayer, but then would allow him to leave the upper room, as it says right here, believing with some of the disciples, believing that Judas left for a worthy motive. Maybe he's going to give something to the poor. I mean, what would our inclination be under the setting? Wouldn't we want to embarrass, humiliate, point it out? And Jesus does not do that. Does it not say something wonderful about our God? Now, what is he doing here? Of course, he'd already given Judas a severe warning to the betrayer. He had warned Judas. But what we see in Jesus' actions to Judas by washing his feet by allowing him to leave the upper room, some of the disciples think, well, maybe he's going to feed the poor, is Jesus pouring out love, love, giving Judas the greatest power of all, which is unconditional love. It should have pierced the heart of Judas as Jesus calmly washed his feet. And then later, as he left the upper room, absent any comments of humiliation from Jesus, Judas should have turned around and fallen at Jesus' feet in repentance. So this story, then, is the setting for the incredible words that follow, which was our memory verse today, the next chapter, John 14, verse 7. The disciples, having just witnessed all of this, Jesus says, Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also, and from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. What is Philip saying here? Then he's saying, Jesus, we love and trust you, but we'd like to see that one who is, well, don't make me say it, but, you know, the one who is not quite like you in character. Show us the Father. Well, listen to Jesus' stunning reply. For a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me 
has seen the Father. Now, and I mean this very reverently, but if we have seen the nose of Jesus, have we seen the nose of the Father? Or is not the meaning here? Jesus is a perfect reflection of God's character. Truly, if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father in every respect. We read on. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What is the Father like? Who is like God? Jesus is like God, God in human form. And the life and death of Jesus is exploding with evidence that our God can be trusted. Who is like God? Thankfully, the answer comes back. Jesus. And of course, we haven't even left the upper room yet to describe all that was revealed about the character of God in Gethsemane and at the cross. But let me just ask one question. Is our picture of the Father such that we can just as easily imagine the Father kneeling to wash the feet of Judas? You see, God could so easily convince everyone in the world of his existence. The Ark could be found, the Ark of the Covenant could be found, maybe the Ten Commandments would be miraculously preserved. But would that really matter? Uh, yes, many might come to read the Bible, become Christians, maybe there would be a great conversion. But the question is not, does God exist? The question is, what is God like? Who is like God? God could show up here in Victorville, a 25-foot pillar of fire. And within minutes, the entire world would know. Within minutes, there would not be one atheist on the planet. But is that what God wants? Does he want us falling to our knees in fear and intimidation? Or does he not want us to see and to believe that God is just like Jesus in character? He wants us to know him in character not out of fear and intimidation. So the pinnacle of all truth, then, the single doctrine on which every other doctrine must harmonize is this. God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. Who is like God? If we have seen Jesus, if we have really seen Jesus, we have seen the Father, a God who is love itself, a God who certainly can be trusted. Now, I'd like to conclude with the story of another patient, very similar to Mr. Jones, but thankfully this time with a different outcome. Sam. I first met Sam in the emergency room, and he was a burly 48-year-old construction worker, and he complained for several weeks to his wife about double vision. And on this particular evening, he was driving home on a single-lane road, and because of the double vision, he saw not one car coming at him, but two cars. And so he turned his car off into the ditch and broke his clavicle. And so he's in the emergency room, and I was asked to see him. And I remember he had a good sense of humor about all of this, and he joked to his wife about his double vision. Um, he said, you're a cute babe, and now I get to see two of you. So he was kind of a funny guy. But Sam's response to me was less than enthusiastic. I came in. Hello, Sam, I'm Dr. Cole, and his face changed, and he said, here we go. Well, with much resistance and coaxing on my part, he finally told me a little bit about the double vision, 
But not only that, he'd been having some shortness of breath and some weakness and swallowing problems. And it didn't take long to confirm that Sam had a neurologic condition called myasthenia gravis. This is a treatable condition, but serious. Uh, basically, it, uh, there's a disconnect between the nerves and the muscles. Well, this was actually exciting for me because all too often in neurology, we diagnose conditions which are not very treatable. So here's a man who's sick and I can help him. So I informed Sam of the good news that I'd be able to help him, that he would get much better with treatment. But to my surprise, he stood up and said, doctor, I don't mean to disrespect you, but I just don't tr trust doctors. I never have. And he went on briefly to describe how his mother and an uncle as he had described it, died at the hand of incompetent doctors. So as he stood up to leave, I told Sam that untreated, his breathing muscles could weaken significantly. Sam, I realize you've had a bad experience with doctors, but this is very serious. Sam, if you will trust me, I can treat this. You will get better. And he just shrugged and said, I'll think about it, doc. And he got up and walked out of the emergency room. Well, a few weeks later, I received another call from the emergency room. And Sam was experiencing more shortness of breath, more difficulty swallowing, to the point that he even developed a pneumonia because of this. And his wife had twisted his arm to come to the emergency room. So I told the emergency room doctor, make sure you keep him there. Admit him, if at all possible. So I arrived a short time later only to discover that he had once again walked out of the emergency room, refusing treatment. And I talked with the emergency room doctor, and based on the description that he gave to me, I realized this was at a critical stage, that untreated, his breathing problem, his swallowing problem, would only get worse. He may not survive. I later learned that Sam went home and just collapsed into a chair and told his wife that he wished to die. I called him at home, and Sam refused to talk to me. So I talked with his wife, and she cried into the phone. He's just so stubborn, Dr. Cole. I don't know what to do. But it was interesting. In the course of our conversation, his wife mentioned that their daughter-in-law, Jolene, was also a patient of mine, and that I had treated her for migraine headaches. And Sam's wife said, you know, maybe Jolene could give Sam a call good idea. And to my surprise, the next day, Sam and Jolene were in my waiting room. Well, he looked terrible. His speech was slurred to the point that it was difficult to understand him. He was noticeably short of breath. He needed a wheelchair to get from the parking lot into my waiting room. And it was fascinating. As we sat down there, Jolene told Sam how she used to have eight migraine headaches a month. And she went on to describe how with the treatment plan that we had worked out together, that her migraine headaches were now almost non-existent. And she explained to Sam, you know, Dr. Cole has helped me. You can trust him, Dad. And after a long conversation, he finally said, okay, Doc, sorry I've been such a jerk. Do what you've got to do. And so with treatment, with weeks and months, Sam eventually came completely back to normal and has virtually no symptoms. Now, my question here in this story is, who do you and I represent in this story? 
Yes, we represent the daughter-in-law in this story. You and I, the church, are the daughter-in-law. And it is our mission to go to the world and to tell our brothers and sisters that God can be trusted. Amen. Our mission as Christians, our mission as Seventh-day Adventists, is to spread the good news that God is gracious, kind, even humble, that God is just like Jesus. And when we ask people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, what we are really asking them to accept is that God is in every respect just like Jesus, that God is love itself. Now, listen very carefully to our mission statement written by Ellen White many years ago. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. What is the message? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Dear Father, we pray that each one of us here may come closer and closer to the reality of who you are, a God who is love, a God who certainly can be trusted. And may we leave this place filled with desire and with energy to share with our brothers and sisters the kind of God you are. Amen.